First Thessalonians chapter 5. Pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You know, when we look in the world and we look at events that are happening in the world, our hearts are heavy as we watch world events. You know, we see that there's war, there's peace, there's fighting, there's hatred. There certainly is no peace. You know, we watch what's happening in Ukraine and our hearts are torn apart as tens of thousands of, of Ukrainians are killed, as the Russians just advance and push on, murdering people. Um, I read an article or a little news clip, a nine-year-old girl whose mom died in her, in her arms and just crying to her mom and to the whole world. She says, I'll never forget you. You're the best mom in the whole world. I wish you'll get in heaven and be happy there. I'll do my best to be a good person and get in heaven, see you in heaven. Then I look at, a little while ago, a white supremacist stepping into a grocery store in Buffalo and just gunning down 10 people. One lady, 32-year-old Roberto Drummond, was one of the victims that moved to Buffalo some 10 years ago to take care of her brother who had leukemia. Or we look at what happened down in Texas a gunman walks into Texas elementary school and kills 19 children and two adults. And even reading that article that you sent me this morning, Fred, just baffling how there's no response and the police just not getting engaged. Well, a man, Joe Garcia, was the husband of one of the wives that, that died, one of the two teachers that died. He died two days later, and it said just because his heart was so crushed and broken. You know, we, and we could go on and on with these world events, but our hearts ache. God, we yearn for Christ to be ruling on earth. We want to see evil crushed. We want to see the evil one cast aside forever into the, his rightful place in lake of fire and brimstone. But before that can happen, what has to happen? And we address them in the survey. First, the Lord, we believe, will return and snatch up those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior prior to then a seven-year tribulation period. And the purpose of that seven-year tribulation period is that not only God's judgment on rebellious mankind, but it's to work in the heart and lives of Israel to fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah where one-third of Israel will turn to the Lord. And then fulfilling the, the covenants, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the new covenants, fulfilling the covenants and making Israel one new heart. And then ushering in at the end of the tribulation, Christ descending down in Armageddon, in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, and able, some of us will see these sights to see what Christ will come. And he'll bring with him the church as he crushes the evil one. My goal tonight, if I were to put it into um, a goal, yeah, we want to look at the pre-tribulational rapture of the Lord. We want to attempt to prove that. But really what I'm after is this in application and closing. We need to live for him until we live with him. Great phrase that really Pastor came, came up with but as we were talking through this message. But really, living for him. In my days on earth until I'm with him face to face. But I want to just have some introductory comments before we really get into 1 Thessalonians. First, that we understand our terminology. If I could spend a, one minute on this. What is tribulation? And it's not just hard times that we may go through. But we, when we're speaking of this, we're really looking or speaking of the seven-year period that Christ addressed in the Mount of Olives in his Olivet Discourse, talks about in the book of Revelation, that will happen on earth. So that seven-year period. 
And then the rapture, it's not really a biblical word, it's a Latin word, rapto, and it means to cease or carry off. And the rapture we look at is the coming of Christ. It's not, um, it's really, we call it the return. It's not a second coming because he's not touching down on earth. It's coming of Christ in the air, the return of Christ. And I'll call those that are dead, be caught up. Paul writes in Thessalonians, and then we that are alive will be caught up with the Lord in the air and return into heaven. But at this point, I'd like to ask James to come up, and he's going to take a moment and read a description of the rapture. So this is a description of the rapture, as a pastor will summarize, and in six uh, chronological points. Uh, There are three key New Testament passages that deals with the rapture of the church. John 14, 1, 2, 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Uh, When taken together, these three present the following descriptions. Number one, Christ will descend with a shout and a blast of a trumpet from the Father's house, in heaven, and to the air above the earth, John 14, verse 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Number two, the souls of the dead saints will descend from heaven with Christ at this coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, when these saints die, their souls left their bodies and went to be with the Lord in heaven, Philippians 1, 21 and 23. Verse three, um, number three, the bodies of the dead church saints will be raised as immortal and corruptible bodies and will be reunited with the returning, their returning soul, 1 Corinthians 15, 41 through 44, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 16. Number four, the bodies of the church saints who have not died before this coming of Christ will be changed instantly into immortality or immortal bodies and corruptible bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Number five, both the resurrected and the changed church saints will be caught up together to meet Christ in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, and John 14, verse 3. And finally, number six, the church saints will return with Christ to his Father's house in heaven to dwell with him and living arrangements that he has prepared for them. John 14, verses 2 to 3. Thank you, James. I just, we're going to skip. I think I put them in your notes if you wanted to see at least um, the points regarding overview of different views that are talked about. different views that people have regarding um, the rapture or the return of Christ. Um, We're addressing pre-tribulational rapture view that the rapture will occur prior to the seven-year tribulation period. I wrote down on those mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, and you could check out those views instead of us taking the time um, tonight. I want to talk a moment before we get into Thessalonians, brief overview of different arguments for the pre-tribulational rapture. And I think that we could 
if I could go back there. We really could look at four, and I believe they're in your notes if you wanted to follow or um, take down a couple, couple notes. First is what we talk about as a hermeneutical argument. Really one and two kind of linked together. What do, I, what do I mean by a hermeneutical argument? And I suppose that each camp might claim to be hermeneutically sound, um, but I believe we are the soundest. <laughs> um, it's based on a consistent application of a literal, historical, grammatical, customary uses of language. We're not bringing in any foreign meaning, just taking the text for what it means and historically tying it all together. Um, I think what's important under this point is that we establish that Israel and the church are different and distinct. They're not the same because some confusion in tribulation views will come at that point. Um, that they're different. Um, when Christ said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, the church is yet future. Um, and when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, and he's talking the church is a mystery, um, that mystery means something that was previously hidden, but now is made known. So in that day, first century, the church is being developed and coming about. And this is important because when we look at um, Old Testament, doesn't talk about the church, but the New Testament that the church is Jew and Gentile together. Because then we step into the second point, dispensational argument. How do we prove that the church will be, be taken out of here before the tribulation? Dispensational argument is God has distinct and different, different dealings with the church and with Israel. Um, when you look at the latter days of both, the church's latter days are different than Israel's latter days. Um, they're not to be distinguished. There's a specific purpose on God bringing about the tribulation. And it's really to fulfill his promises that he made in the Old Testament and to bring Israel to the point where they will repent and cry out to him as Zechariah 12 talks about. Um, the church's latter days. Um, the church's latter days talk about prosperity and lukewarmness. That's in Revelation 3, 14 and 19. It says the church is not appointed to wrath. Romans 5, verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by blood, much more shall we be saved by, by him from the wrath of God. So we're going to be saved from that wrath. It talks in 1 Thessalonians 1, our passage that we're looking at, um, in chapter 1, verse 9, it says that we'll be saved from the wrath that's coming. Um, for they themselves report... Um, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So not just two passages, but continue the expectation of the church as they'll be saved from that future wrath that is to come. Whereas the latter days of Israel, you look in Daniel 9, we'll not turn there, but if you want to just make that reference note, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, Israel's latter days are turmoil, tribulation, hardship, Christ speaking in Matthew 24, 15, when you see this happening, flee for the mountains, speaking to Israel. So their end days are entirely different. Third argument that I present that are on the notes, the imminency argument. The hope of the church is for the imminent return of Christ. We're not looking for something else. We're not looking for some seal to be open. We're not looking for a massive worldwide famine. We're not looking for some person to present themselves. It's continually looked at as an imminent hope. If you have a hope of something that's imminent, then it kind of gives guidelines that nothing else can happen prior to that. And that's continually the hope of the church. 
When a hope is imminent, then we're looking for nothing else but one thing, and that's the return of Jesus Christ. Um, in Titus chapter 2, verse um, 13, it talks about the hope that um, we have as we're looking for Christ. Let me read that. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians 3.20 has the same thing when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that looking for nothing else, not some wrath, not some tribulation. I am looking, yearning for the return of the Lord. So that's the imminent argument. Um, and there are other passages, 1 Corinthians 1.7, if you're taking notes. Chapter 15 talks about it, that the hope of the church. Um, then lastly, chronological argument. And I refer to the book of Revelation very briefly in passing. What happens in chapters 1, 2, and 3? Chapters 2 and 3 are the letter to the churches. That's right. And there are seven churches. Do you know how many times churches use um, in, in chapters 1 through 3? It's used a, a bunch of times. I, um, 19 times it's used in chapters 1 to 3. Do you know how many times churches use in chapters 4 to 22? How many times? Who says five? Four, three, two, one? One time. One time in Revelation 22 as he's wrapping up the letter to the churches. So that's, that's kind of important. Two and three to the seven churches, the scene suddenly switches to heaven in chapter four, not on earth, and then it turns back to earth in chapter six and church is not mentioned. We believe that gives an argument chronologically defending the church or the rapture of the church prior. At this point, as we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians, James is going to come and read chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. The day of the Lord. But concerning this time and this season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, not, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we, we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So the tribulation period is a time of anguish, persecution, turmoil, 
pain on rebellious mankind, and we see that in the book of Revelation. It's not a time that the Bible talks of punishing a believer. In fact, the scripture supports and shows that the child of God will not go through this, but I believe will be snatched out of here. And I want us to look at the passage that James James read as we work our way through a little bit of um, this chapter um, briefly in chapter 5. Let's talk about the day of the Lord in verses 1 to 3. What's the background as he begins, he steps into verse 1 of chapter 5? Now concerning the times and seasons, wait a minute, now. We're going to address that word in a moment. But what preceded it. It's important that we understand the rapture, what we're looking at is the heart of the rapture passage. Chapter 4 preceded that. Chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. So it's not part of the day of the Lord. It's not included in that. In fact, when we look at this word now, if you have in your Bible, ESV translates it now. Maybe some of your Bibles might say the word but. It's a Greek adversative particle, day. It's showing a, a, a contrast to what has just been talked about. It's not part of it. And yet there's a connection to what precedes it, but it's not part of what he's now about to say. It's a new subject. The same word is used as the first verse of verse 13 of chapter 4 as he changes or transitions to talk about the rapture, or what we view as the return of Christ for the church. It's that word day that begins that. It's a new subject. So we begin in chapter 5. It's a new subject. It's not something that's connected to the context, specifically chapter 4. So he's using this particle to introduce. Now let me talk to you about the day of the Lord, apart from the rapture. So the day of the Lord and rapture can't be connected. He's introducing a new topic. It implies that there is an ongoing relationship to what preceded it, but Paul wants them to know this is what happens after the rapture. This is what happens after the church has been snatched. And so he writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything to be written to you. He says, you don't need for me to write about this. Now, they needed to know back in the rapture, chapter 4, verse 13, they were confused. So Paul needed to tell them, this is what's happening to the, your loved ones that have died. But here, he's saying, you understand what the day of the Lord is. He doesn't need to enlighten them on that. They fully grasp it. They got it. They understood that. But we need to talk a moment because I'm not sure that I, or may I say, we have the same grasp or understanding as they do. So what is the phrase, the day of the Lord? Um, And that's the whole context that he's talking here of the day and the day of the Lord, that day that's coming. What is the day of the Lord? You know, the Old Testament passages need to be addressed just very briefly because they are being reached back into. He's referencing them. That's the context. That's the setting to which the New Testament believers understood. There are a few passages, and if you want to write these down, and you could check them out later, we'll reference just one or two of them. But Isaiah 13, 9 and 16, talks about that dramatic day of the Lord as, as Isaiah's writing to the, to, the, to the Israelites and what's going to happen with the invasion of the Assyrians coming. Um, the Babylonians, he's describing this destruction that, that they will bring. And it is a past destruction, past travesty that's brought upon them. This is what's going to happen to you Israelites and you, because you rejected God's message to you. So day of the Lord is speaking of a series, a, a day of calamity, a day of great tribulation to a group of people that was in the past in, in Isaiah's day. Joel chapter 1 and 2, if you can chase that down 
um, quickly enough. Um, if not, I'll just read Joel 1 and 2. Joel is speaking of a future judgment that God will pour out on earth. And chapter 115, he says, Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near. So we know the day of the Lord is a setting to the whole book. Then we drop into the last couple of verses of chapter 2. Verse 28, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on flesh. Let me go to 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That awesome promise found in Romans 10, 13 finds his heart right here in Joel 2, 32. So he's speaking of this future day and we, we read those verses and you might be more familiar with the Revelation seals that are being addressed as we look at those and even a little bit of Matthew 24. So he's speaking of this day that's going to happen. It's a future day and this day that will happen will be this calamity that will bring. But you see the blessing aspect to it? In that day, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And truly, the third of Israel will call upon him, and they will be saved. So that's Joel 1 and 2 briefly. Amos 5, perhaps we won't turn there. Amos 5, 18 to 20, talks about the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness, not light. A day of great tribulation, of judgment, not blessing. So there's no blessing in the Amos 5 passage. And they were looking at... at God bring the day of the Lord, judge our enemies. But they didn't realize they were going to be judged also. So, so Amos is like, hello guys, wake up. You're part of this judgment. You're part of the day of the Lord. And then Zephaniah also talks about, but to sum it all up, all of these passages, the day of the Lord, it is based on, it's a terrible time of judgment. As we look at these four passages in the Old Testament, Zephaniah 1 and Zephaniah 3 of culminating in the second coming of Christ that brings blessing and ushers in his millennial kingdom. So this New Testament audience understood what day of the Lord meant. It was a time of of great trouble and tribulation. But now we want to dissect this passage and ask, is he expecting the believer to go through it? Is he going to warn them, get ready for this ugly time that's coming? You're going to be part of this wrath. Is Is this their expectation? Were they to... Forgetting chapter 4, which he just told and makes a contrast, let's look further to see what he says in our Thessalonians 5 passage. He says in verse, verse 1, For you brothers, um, let me just, if I could make a, 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 just a quick note. Again, time doesn't allow. It's really a message in itself. But would you write down Matthew 24, 3, really the whole chapter, but let me say Matthew 24, 3 to 14, and Revelation 6, 1 to 6, you look at these two, and it's pivotal that I, that I bring this up and pause for a moment, a moment. Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, I think, are talking the same event. Um, Paul writes, or I'm, I'm sorry, the Lord speaks in Matthew 24, and he talks about, there's, you'll hear of wars and rumors of war. Then you have John speaking in Revelation 6. You're going to see the first seal, judgment. The rider on the red horse comes with a bow, but there's no arrows. That's, that's pivotal. If a man has a bow but no arrows, what's, he, what's being said? What do you think, chief? <laughs> it's, it's a picture of warfare 
but he's not going to fight because he doesn't have any bullets. He doesn't have any arrows. So he has that threat, but it's not going to happen. And we have in Matthew 24, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. So there's rumors of war during this time period. And then you're going to have the second and third seal that breaks out that we see is um, a living creature says, take peace from the earth and there's going to be great warfare. When you tie that into Matthew 24, nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's fighting taking place. And what happens when there's been a lot of fighting and destruction? What do we hear that probably is happening in Ukraine? When things are destroyed, what's hard to get? Your friend having problems getting food, water, supplies? And often that will bring a what? A famine. So that's what's talked about next in Matthew 24. And that's the second seal. I mean the third seal. You have warfare. The third seal is famine will come about afterwards. Well, what am I saying? It's, it's, it's important that we get... Matthew 24, Revelation 6 are talking about the first three seals, I believe, prior to the midpoint of the tribulation. But Matthew 24, verse 15 then says, and beware of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now we're in the midpoint. Midpoint, so if I were to say it clearly this way, I believe the first three seals, now you have the fourth seal spilling over into the second half of the tribulation. Seals, trumpets, and bold judgments all happens in a second. Put differently, there's tribulation the whole period to say, no, it's, this is pre-wrath, and it's just going to be the church will be raptured. No, God's wrath is being spilled out the whole period. It's coming. It's the birth pains that are heard in the first half it's that Christ spoke about, and they're coming. And then you see the, the warfare. You see the famine. Then you have a man that steps forward to bring peace. And Israel is to run for the mountains at this period. These sealed judgments continue to unfold. So it's this whole period that I think is a day of the Lord. And that's to which the Thessalonian church had an understanding that, that Paul now is addressing them that they don't need to have fears or concern as to what's happening or what's going to happen regarding them. So he says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware. Um, as we're looking at this um, comment here, he says, you're, you're fully aware of what's to happen. Um, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why people are saying there is peace and security. I think they're saying peace after the first seal. Oh, things are getting better. It's peaceful. The guy just had a bow and, oh, he's now squelching everything. Then all hell breaks loose with warfare, nation, and nation, and kingdom, kingdom um, breaking forth. So in the midst of saying peace and safety, he says in verse 3, sudden destruction will come like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I want us to step into some important differences that we see in, in verses 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, there's a, it's another contrast that Paul is bringing up here, but he's developing a contrast, and, and you sh probably picked it up in the personal pronouns that are being read, but you brothers. So he's talking about peace and destruction coming upon them like labor pains, suddenly catching them, but he uses that intimate um, relational term, but brothers, um, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. There's a group of contrasts that are played out in this whole passage. Did you see them? Darkness, verse 4, and then you have what in verse 5? You have light. 
in, verse, in verses 6, 7, and 10, you have the contrary of sleep, and you have what? Awake. Then you have in verses 7, 5, 7, and 8, day versus night. So you have the believer that's awake, that you're not going to be part of this, and you're in the daytime. You have the unbeliever that's asleep, he's in darkness, and he will be part of it. There's a tension, there's a continual contrast. Um, tying in with pastor's message this morning, they are identity statements. Identity statements. This is who you are as a child of God. You won't be part of the, the darkness. You won't be part of the, the night. You won't, be a, you, won't be a, you won't be asleep. It's different for you. He says in verse 4, you are not in darkness. Verse 5, you are children of light. Verse 5, we are not of the night or darkness. Ready? Verse 3 is them. Verse 3 is they. Verse 6 is others. Verse 7 is those. Verse 7 is those. Verse 4 is you. Verse 5 is you. Verse 5 is we. Verse 6 is us. Us. Verse 8, we. Us. Verse 9, us. Verse 10, us, we. There is a constant tension here. They, we, them, us. There is a contrast continually that he's going through. Darkness, light. Asleep, awake. Children, um, of really, they're, they're, they're unbelievers. Brothers. So there is that continual tension that he wants them to get. You are not in darkness. You are not in night. That day is not going to overtake you suddenly. You're not going to be part of it. They are awesome identity statements. Identity statements. Tying in Psalm chapter, Psalm 8 this morning that we look at. Do we get who we are? Do we get what God has promised to us? Do we understand our identity, uh, what it means to be a child of God? And he's bringing this to the forefront to the Thessalonian believers. There's a difference that you're facing. You're not going to be in this day of the Lord. And he's going to slam Duncan in verse 9 in a moment that we're not appointed to wrath. But he's building up to all of that. He says that he wants them to understand them and you, darkness and light, um, asleep, awake. He's continually building that tension that there's something special and privileged about their identity, about being their identity in Jesus Christ. How should this change our lives? How should we live? Should we live as asleep believers, those that know Christ? Should we go through life just drifting through, or should we be vigilant and awake? I asked Fred to just talk about vigilance. He has spent his life as a police officer of a chief of the police force, Homeland Security, par excellence. And I thought he's a perfect man just to talk about vigilance and how he would train people, his officers, to be vigilant. Thank you, Pastor. Certainly not a perfect man. But uh, when Pastor asked me if I'd be willing to come share something with you tonight, uh, one illustration, normally I give him a hard time and I... And I uh, this time I just said, yeah, I'd love to do that, because what came to mind, the minute he asked me that, I'm going to give my age away a little bit here, is uh, something I've lived with my whole life for the last 42 years, because 42 years ago was my first day at the police academy, and I remember it vividly as I arrived. We stood in our first formation, and there right in front of us, right in front of the formation, the whole class, was a headstone, like you would see in a cemetery, and on that headstone was an engravement. 
and it was called the Ten Deadly Errors. We didn't quite know what that was going to uh, mean or how it was going to apply to us at the time, but it was front and center. So our PT instructor came out, and the first thing he said to us was, in a real booming voice, Ten Deadly Errors. He said, now repeat them in order. And we're, we're trying to read them from a distance. So what I want to do tonight is, real quickly, I'm just going to go through those because they set up the principles for vigilance. And they set up the principles for being alert and sober and awake. They also tell you what happens if you're not vigilant, sober, alert, and awake. And I will tell you that throughout my entire career, I really paid attention to these 10 deadly errors. But besides that, as a Christian, I can look at these 10 deadly errors and look at them in a spiritual sense and see the application in a spiritual sense. And that's what I kind of what I want to do for you in just a couple quick minutes. And then I will give you an illustration as to how they applied in real life in a situation where I was there. So I don't want to take credit for these 10 deadly errors. They were actually developed by a homicide detective in the LAPD back in 1975. And the reason he did that is he was one of the investigating detectives in a really famous, or I should say infamous, killing in, in California, which a book and a movie was written called The Onion Field. And what he did is he wrote another book, and it was called Officer Down Code 3. And in that book is when he, for the first time, identified these 10 deadly errors. And the reason he did is because in all of his experience, he was able to take all the police killings that he observed and he investigated, and he was able to look at them for common denominators and say, okay, in the majority of these, one or multiple of these ten deadly errors occur. So if we can stay focused on that, then we can hopefully mitigate that and not fall into the traps that these officers did. First deadly error, failure to maintain equipment and proficiency. Now, for a police officer, you can figure that out quickly, guns, vests, et cetera, et cetera. And proficiency, practice, practice, practice. And that's all true. But I look at it spiritually also now because I'm no longer on the job. But I think about the, the, the equipment that was given to us, and that's the armor of God. What do we do with to maintain that equipment to make sure it's clearly on us at all times and it's buckled up properly? And how proficient are we with it in a daily, daily basis? Because we're told to put it on, what do we do with it? So I could take that failure to maintain equipment and proficiency, and I could apply it spiritually as well. Number, second deadly error, improper search, improper use of handcuffs. Again, very easy to see how that would happen in the police world. But the reality, the underlying principle is being systematic and thorough in everything we do. So the question here is, how disciplined are we as Christians? How intentional, intentionally, intentional are we with everything we do in our walk of life as a Christian. Number three, third deadly error, sleepy or asleep. Obviously, when you're sleepy or asleep, you're going to lack alertness. And when you do that, it's extremely dangerous. Question is, as a Christian, what do we like when we're worn down? What happens? When our guard is down and we're worn down, are we more prone to sin? How does that work for us? Relaxing too soon. Cops do this regularly, unfortunately. They kind of think that it's the threat has subsided. But we know, even in a spiritual sense, the threat is always out there, spiritual threats. So we get lulled into this false sense of security. And what we say as Christians sometimes is, I'll never fall into that sin 
that will never affect me. That's really not the case. And there is a way around that, and it's being intentional and going back to some of those other things I already talked about. Number five, fifth deadly uh, error, missing danger signs. So first you've got to know what a danger sign is, become informed of it, and then which ones can exist, and then actively looking for them. As we walk through life and walk through the world, are there danger signs out there for us? Are we seeing them? I think we really have to be honest with ourselves that sometimes we're just not paying attention as we're watching TV because there's a lot of danger that's happening and, you know, just things that are coming our way. Are we missing those danger signs? Number six, bad positioning. Where are we in life? You have to know where you are and you've got to figure out if, in fact, that's where you need to be or you should be. You know, the whole issue about avoiding temptation, that's knowing where you're at and where you should be. Number seven, seventh deadly error, failure to watch the hands. In police work, the hands are what, are going to, is what is going to kill you. Somebody's going to kill you using their hands one way or another. As a Christian, I think of sin with this. And what I want to watch is what I'm seeing, my eyes and my ears. Okay? So you want to guard that. So on the road, I would guard by watching people's hands. As a Christian, I want to guard myself by what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. Number eight, and we used, to, we, used to, we used to have to shout this one out, and I mean belt it out, tombstone courage. So what is tombstone courage? Well, that's when you rush in and you try to do something alone when you shouldn't do it alone. So how do we look at that as Christians? Well, this is where you can't go through this uh, alone. This is where discipleship, small groups, D groups, regular church uh, attendance, because we have to do it as a church family. If you don't do that, you're really bumping up against the deadly error of tombstone courage. Ninth deadly error, preoccupation. This is personal, professional stress that comes into your life and it distracts you from what you're doing. Okay? This happens a lot with cops. They get distracted because they, you know, they're, they're, they're just regular people with family problems and issues. And you come to work and you have all those distractions and it affects your attention and you become not complacent, but just distracted to the point where you don't see the things you should be doing. Same thing happens in our lives. Stress, anxiety, finances, relationships, they all distract us from what we should be doing. Reading the Bible, coming to church, being with the church family, preoccupations, a deadly error. Last one, apathy, thinking it will never happen to you. Well, I've heard that so many times, you know, and being Christians, well, none of that would ever happen to us. We're Christians. Well, it's not the case. You've got to work hard. You have to be vigilant. So they're the ten deadly errors. One quick illustration and then a closing. Quick illustration kind of puts a lot of these together. I had a lot of different things happen in my career, but I think this one kind of ties it together. Young cop, brand new on the job, just released from his coach, out on patrol. I was actually a sergeant at the time. He tries to stop a car on Route 1. Car won't stop. Continues on. So he calls it out, and he says, car's not stopping, but it's not a pursuit. Well, for me, I know that's a problem. I don't think he's even recognizing it as a problem. So I start moving towards him right away, and I ask other cars in the area to start moving towards him. I was the closest guy at the time. Dispatcher runs the plate. plate comes back unregistered, so that's problem number two. Car leaves Route 1, gets into a jug handle. Officer calls that out. That's another problem, because now he's dictating where he's going to be as opposed to the cop dictating where he's going to be. 
Gets into the jug handle and stops, but not in the jug handle. Pulls the car all the way up, so now he's half in the jug handle, half in route one. Now, if you think about it, that's a bad position, okay? So I'm still in route. This is happening very quickly, as most things do in life. And uh, as I'm coming over the hill of Route 1, I see what's happening. Because I could see him down there. His lights are on. I see the position. I don't like what I'm seeing. Dispatch comes over the air and says, there's a warrant out on that particular party that owns that car. Okay? So you know what it sounds like when a car hits the gas pedal really hard? I hit that pedal hard, hit the siren real quick, and I'm still a distance away, but I could see because it's a straight shot. I don't get into the jug handle. I literally just, like, come to a skidding halt in front. By the time I do that, both guys are out of the car. You, you talk about identities, contrast, right? We call them good guys, bad guys, right? Bad guy's out of the car. He's a big guy, stocky, not tall, but well-built, lots of tattoos on him. He's kind of, like, overpowering, not physically, but in a better position than my guy is. And uh, they're way too close to one another. And my guy's got his handcuffs out, and his hands are tied up, but he's not cuffing him or even putting him in a cuffed position. Everything's wrong. I immediately, as I'm, like, approaching on a run, I'm yelling, on your knees. Well, the minute I said that, he dropped to his knees, laced his hands behind his head, and put his feet together, like this, in a cross. What that tells me is being an experienced cop, this is not the first time he's been arrested, and looking at other factors probably did some jail time in his life and has practiced a lot of these things. So I uh, asked the, uh, the new officer, I said, I'll be the contact guy. And I, I did what I'm supposed to do. I pull him back a little bit. I get him cuffed up, do a, do a good thorough search, put him in my car. We go back to headquarters and uh, I get the guy, uh, you know, back into the room. I, I had to ask him, I said, hey, what are you doing out there? What's going through your mind? Now, I already knew he was in jail for 10 years. I learned all that already. He was in prison, not just jail. He served about 10 years in prison. He says, well, he said, to be honest with you, he said, before I heard you coming, I was sizing him up to take him out because I don't want to go back to jail. He said, the only thing that saved him was you coming over that hill on Route 1 the way you did. So that kind of gives you an idea of recognizing deadly errors, and I'll say practical as well as spiritual, and how you can mitigate them. And I'll leave you with this thought as well. It's not just how we do it, because what I did next with that officer was privately had a lengthy discussion with him about all these things and used these 10 deadly errors to explain to him what he did wrong and what he needs to do in the future. That's called discipleship. And I think that's what we need to do with new Christians as well, because as they go through life, they'll make mistakes as well. So in closing, I just have a question, and the question goes for me too. What are we doing with our deadly errors, and how are we addressing them in order to promote ourselves being awake, alert, and sober at all times? Thank you. Fred. Well, I guess we should just close in prayer. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Turn back with me to verses 6 to 10. Just want to look at the challenge that Paul gives us the challenge to the child of God. The application, a lot of what Fred covered and picked up, um, Paul does here in verses 6 and following. Let us not sleep as others, but let us keep awake and be sober. 
He's given what we, these are called horatory. They're in the, in the subjunctive. He's giving horatory commands. I'm, I'm commanding you, let us do this. He's calling them to action. And he says, first, let us not sleep. You know, we the redeemed, we're not to live like the unbeliever. We're not to be like them. We're to be vigilant. We're to be alert. And he uses, he uses present tense verbs. It's, it's things that's to constantly been, be happening. It's the way that they are to live. They are to continuously be alert. They are to continuously be sober. They are to continuously not be indifferent, but to be focused and vigilant in their, in their reality of the Lord's return and being reminded of that. Not to be spiritually lethargic, not to be complacent. He's calling them to the extreme opposite state, to alertness. You know, sometimes that we function and we live um, in a spiritual stupor, that we forget to whom we belong and we, we forget that we're, we're on enemy turf. Um, we're on enemy soil. We understand the, the prince of this world. Yes, God is sovereign. God's in absolute control. But God still works through the evil that Satan does. But, but we, we are part of a world that we don't belong to and that we have to be vigilant. We have to be alert, that we can't be indifferent. He says in verse 6, let us keep awake. We're not night people. We're day people. Day people are to live differently. And because of this incredible prospect that we have, we're not to live as they live. We're to live focused and intentional. You know, Fred talks about security work, but imagine that you lived on, a, on the street that you live on. Your neighbor had been robbed. This is all in a two-week span. Your neighbor to the left of you, your neighbor to the right to you, your neighbor behind you, and your neighbor in front of you, all within a two-week span. How are you going to live tonight as you're sitting at home? You're the only guy with around six neighbors that hasn't been robbed. <laughs> you're going to be vigilant. You're going to be alert as to what's happening. That's the way we should live our lives. We're to live focused, vigilant. But what does that look like? What does, what does a sober life look like? What does a vigilant life look like? How does it look for, for a young person, um, for, a for a teen? How do they function? Are um, they going to be influenced by the world and what culture says and what you should do? And it's okay if you go to these places or you allow this to happen. Or are they going to function? Now, this is what the Word of God says. This is how we live. Or how about a, a dad that's so busy and he's becoming greedy and consuming, just making, making, making? Is he going to keep working and pushing his family aside? Or is he going to be focused, be vigilant? No, I'm not working. I'm going to pour into my kids. I'm going to spend time with the family and invest and build into their lives. And what does it look like for a parent? You know, as you have dreams for your, for your kid, are you going to push them in the world of, of um, academics? Oh, I want my kid to be able to get a scholarship to this place. Not that that's bad, but if that becomes their God, then I'm spending all of my spare time studying, studying. I'm taking SAT prep tests. I understand it's a year away, but I'm prepping for it now. We're, we're so busy in that, or, or, school, or, or um, um, sports. We're pushing them, getting them involved in all these travel teams, but we're not spending as much time, hey, how are you doing your devotions? Um, how are you doing in that little book that I bought you and that we've been working through? Let me see what you did this morning. Uh, if we're not having those conversations and investing, we have the wrong priority. We're not vigilant as a dad. 
I, I wish we could stop. We don't have time, but just what I got through your text messages, Roberto. You went down to Tennessee with a couple of your boys. What is it, a retreat? And on a mission trip, opportunity to lead people to the Lord. I mean, to have that kind of investment and that focus. I'm going to shepherd my, my kids and build into their lives as to what's really important. Not going off on some retreat so they could be involved in sports. Again, not that that's wrong, but making the, the priority what really should be the priority. This is what... what Paul is calling the Thessalonians to be awake, to be alert. He says to be sober, um, not to be filled with, with intoxics that, that sidetracked you. Be sober-minded, to be focused, to have some self-control. It's like a thin person that's working in an ice cream shop, um, assuming that they don't have a high metabolism, they're burning it all off. They just realize, no, I'm not going to eat this stuff and become you know, bigger than I should. Um, there's a self-control, there's a focus. And that's the way we should be as believers, that we're focused on what, what really matters. Um, we're, we're out of time, but let me just throw out, and maybe you could just study it later, but putting on the breastplate of faith and love, breastplate covering, protecting, and he's, and he's talking about the heart, what, what makes a person click. Faith and love. This is how we should live, talking of what, what does vigilance look like? Vigilance means I'm going to put on faith and love. I'm going to care for, for those around me. Um, and, and, you know, life happens. We blow it at times. To go to a person, hey, I was wrong. I apologize. I was in the flesh. Now let's press on and live for God. You know, it, it, it's, it's caring and faith and love to one another, investing. Um, but also for the unsaved person, wanting to share the gospel with them. So Paul calls them, put on that breastplate of faith. Focus in him and love towards one another. But he adds another piece of the armor and he keeps stressing in verse 8, not only breastplate of faith, the helmet of hope and salvation. Um, what does the helmet protect? Your head. Um, in police work, NFL, whatever other sports, if you do um, some of these extreme sports, dirt racing, and you're going to have a helmet to protect your head. So he's after their thinking and what, what guards and protects them. Helmet of salvation. I have hope in Jesus Christ that I belong to him and where I'm heading. I'm going to have that guide me and direct how I live in this world. And he brings the verse 9 as a reminder again. For God has not destined us for wrath. And I believe that the wrath is the entire tribulation period, not just one half. That seal is breaking loose throughout the whole period. That's not what we're looking for. God has not destined us to, for wrath, but it says that we are destined, that we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be vigilant. May we be awake. May we be alert. Constantly investing in our children, constantly investing in one another's lives. I appreciate your line on discipleship and small groups as we come together to build into each other's lives because we are a community, a community of believers that we are to watch out for one another and how we're doing in our walk and to go out and make a difference for God. May we be vigilant and intentional in our relationships and pursuit of him. God, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace to us and that you not only have you saved us, not only have you given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live within us and made us new creatures. Not only have you guided and you're blessing us with your word and a lamp to our feet, but God, as we look at what's coming ahead of us, 
that we are believers are protected from that awful time period and God, our hearts grieve from the evil around us. But God, we yearn for you to reign on earth. Until that day, Lord, may we be found faithful to you. May we be about expanding your kingdom. May we get every day into the precious word that you have given to us and live by the precious spirit that is guiding us and directing us. May we be vigilant and sober for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.